Well, Merry Christmas. It's fun to say that again. My name is Josiah Schwartz. I'm the pastor of Student Ministries here at Community Bible Church. Really glad you guys are here with, here with us this morning. I wanted to start this morning uh, by sharing my favorite Christmas memory with you guys. Uh, when I was around seven or eight, we lived in Phoenix, Arizona. And uh, around this time of year, Roger thinks even my parents came to me and said, Josiah, what would you like for Christmas? And this is the early 90s, mind you. And so it's, you know, they're thinking maybe a, maybe a Nintendo game, not Super Nintendo, just Nintendo. That's how old I am. Uh, maybe Micro Machines, maybe some Legos, maybe a G.I. Joe, a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle. Those are popular at the time, right? Donatello, he's my guy. Um, but I told my parents this, much to their amazement. I said, Mom and Dad, what I want this year, more than anything in the world, is a desk. I said, a desk? Yes, I want a desk for my room. Like, you don't, you hate school. Like, yes, I do. But I want to, I, I told them this, I want a desk for activities. They're, oh, what a weirdo. Like, gosh, just, good thing we have two other sons. Um, and so I'm like, okay, well, we'll see. We'll see what happens. And so December comes, and you're a little kid, and you're just so excited for your desk. So Christmas morning comes, and we, me and my brothers run downstairs, and I quickly deduce, because I'm smart, that there is no desk under the Christmas tree, because I didn't see any wrapped large thing under the tree that could be a desk. So yeah, I'm opening the gifts, and I'm happy, it's cool, but there's a little hinge of, you know, a little disappointment. And it's the end of Christmas, and you guys, if you've been a kid, well, you were all kids, but maybe if you have kids, you understand end of Christmas, there's the looking around the tree for that last present, you know? There's just, maybe there's just one more because the 30 other gifts aren't enough. Um, and so I'm a little disappointed that I didn't get my desk, and then I hear it's a knock on the front door. My mom says, Josiah, go get the door. I open the door, and then this happens. Aww, oh, so tender. And I got my desk, and I had it for like a long time, and I loved it. But I look at that picture now, and there's just so many things I would like to say to that little boy. First of all, those pajamas are on point. Those, <laughs> am I right? Like, those things, like, are styling. Rachel, I'd love an adult pair of those for Christmas. Uh, but more importantly, I'd love to say to him, just enjoy that hair. Like, just maybe not wear so many hats. Maybe just play with it more. I don't know. Uh, just, just enjoy it, because it's fleeting. And it's one day very soon, it'll be gone. So... Miss you. Anyways, that's one of my favorite Christmas memories. Uh, I just wanted to share that with you this morning. But the Christmas season is finally upon us. We've made it through a bevy of holidays, experiences, events this year to finally get to this point. And for some of us, it's been a banner year full of blessings with family, advancement at work, and just blessing upon blessing. And for others of us, it's been maybe the opposite. It's been maybe a very difficult year marked by loss marked by the loss of a job, difficult family situations, and maybe just that feeling that nothing is going our way this year. And as we approach Christmas, we're taking time to uh, look at the Christmas narrative through the lens that we are beloved, beloved, that we are chosen, that we are blessed, and that we are given. But this morning, I have the great privilege of helping us examine something most of us would rather not, certainly not at the Christmas season, and that's this idea that we are broken. And the Christmas season has a way of highlighting a lot of things for us, both good and bad. The Christmas season brings out often us our very best and our very worst. 
I think we can all look back on Christmas and remember moments like that of getting our desk and having these amazing memories. But we also, I think, have memories of Christmases that have not been so great, where maybe a family member had a meltdown or, you, or just things did not go your way. Christmas seems to bring out often the best and worst in us, and often we're left chasing a feeling and pining for a past experience, just hoping about hope that this Christmas can just make us feel like we used to feel. But what happens when the season can't quite match the lofty expectations we've put on it? What happens when we're left wanting, when the healing that we've so wanted the ceiling to hold doesn't come? And maybe worse, when if we're left worse off for it. My hope for you and I today is this, is that in the broken state we may be in, that we may find ourselves in, that, this, that our brokenness itself could be the foundation that we let Jesus work in us this year. Let's pray. God, I thank you for today. God, that we live in a place where we can freely gather together to worship you, God, in, in fellowship and song and through your word. And I thank you for this past week of Thanksgiving. I pray that that spirit of Thanksgiving and would not leave us, that we would be people who are continually thankful for all you have done. God, I pray you would bless this time. Lord, that you'd use me right now. In your son's name, amen. So this idea that, you, that we are broken people shouldn't be like a big aha moment for you, right? It shouldn't, just be, it shouldn't be any sort of grand revelation. Like, you know, you know that you're broken. I, I know that I'm broken. That's, not, that's something we've known for a long time. We've known from a er, very early age. Uh, my wife Rachel and I, we have a two-year-old son, Ezekiel. Uh, he is just the, the cutest little guy ever. We love him. Uh, he loves to run around and play. He's a little crazy man. Uh, but he has these moments sometimes where he's running around and he doesn't hurt himself, but he'll just stop sometimes and he just cries. And he just cries and cries and cries and he's screaming and you're just like, what, what do you want? And if you've seen him running around, you know he doesn't speak English yet, which is great. And so we're trying to communicate with him, what's wrong, buddy? And just blah, 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 mama, blah, 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 mama. Every other third word's mama. Uh, and you were just like, what is wrong? And what's wrong is that my son is broken is that my son is a fallen creature, just like all the rest of us, and there's a brokenness inside of him. And we, it's just, that's just who we are as human beings. Our brokenness is often at the centerpiece of many of our conversations, whether we know it or not. We often find it easier to focus on the broken situations in our life than the ones that are going well. The majority of popular works of art in our culture, when you stop and think about it, are about brokenness. The songs, the books we read, the movies are often a response to the brokenness in an individual's life and how they're trying to deal with it. Brokenness is everywhere. And Paul speaks of the state of brokenness that is felt both by us and creation itself when he says this in Romans 8, 19 to 23. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to, to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption of sonship, the redemption of our bodies. 
Paul has come to a profound understanding of suffering when he says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And I wonder for you and I today, is that our attitude towards suffering and brokenness? Is that our attitude towards it that, man, I may be going through something right now, but what's coming next is going to be even better and it's going to be worth it. The default of our hearts, I know certainly the default of my heart, when it comes to suffering, whether it's physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, is to view it as an unwelcomed intrusion. To do everything I can to just push it away, get it out of my sight, to just to be done with it. We often don't want to consider, we often do not consider our present sufferings in comparison with the, the glory that is to come because it is so difficult in the moment to consider that anything is worth what we are going through. We find it so difficult, whatever it is, whether it's physical, emotional, whatever it might be, we find it so difficult to think that, man, there's some, this, there, good can come out of this. Because we are stuck in that moment, and that moment feels like everything to us. You know, right now it's safe to say in a room this size that all of us are either probably coming out of a season of broken, brokenness, we're firmly in one right now, or fortunately we're probably going to come into one soon. It's just kind of inevitable. And Jesus plainly tells us what to expect in the Gospel of John when he says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. There are going to be problems in your life. There are going to be seasons that seem unbearable. If we went around the room and I gave a mic to all of you and said, asked you to share the most painful experience in your life, you all would have one. You all would have a story or a time when it felt like you just can't go on, where you don't have answers, where you just feel like the world is crashing down your shoulders. Jesus tells us very plainly, you are going to have problems. There are going to be times in your life where you don't have any answers, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. We can have peace because we have a God who has and is overcoming the world. And that leads us to make a choice. How will we deal with our brokenness? Because brokenness can either lead us closer to God or further from his, or further from his presence. When we experience the deepest pains in life, whether it's a loved one dying, a, a brutal rejection or betrayal, a divorce, whatever the pain is, our first reaction is to think, why me? Why does this have to happen now? What did I do wrong? How do I make it better? Why me? Why me? Please hear me. There is absolutely nothing wrong with mourning the hurts and the brokenness in our life. It's, it's cathartic. It's necessary for us to take time to mourn what we have lost and are losing. But when we simply live in that mourning and we can't move past it, we're allowing depression to, to move in. We're allowing ourselves to simply live in our suffering and not moving past it. Understand this. How you respond to your pain, to your suffering, says everything about how you view God and, his, and how you view his ability to redeem your situation. A lot of you guys know Rachel and I uh, just moved back to California from Maui this past May. Um, and in October of 2013, we felt the call 
from God to move to Maui. Most of you are saying, wow, the call to move to Maui, like real difficult to hear. But it was. I mean, uh, for us to move halfway across the world, it felt like without jobs was, was an undertaking for us. I lost a steady job at a church in Newberry Park. Rachel had a great job at Nordstrom's at the Thousand Oaks Mall, and life was going good for us, you know, from the outside. But we felt like God was calling us to be near family as we started our, our family. And so October of 2013, we packed up the meager possessions that we owned, and we, uh, we moved to Maui. And for Rachel, it was a pretty smooth transition. She uh, got, some, got a job right away and kind of got into the, the rhythm of life. For me, it wasn't so easy. The job opportunities that I had felt were lined up, didn't materialize, uh, I didn't have a job for three or four months upon moving there. And for me, depression set in pretty quickly. Uh, I, I found very suddenly that I, my, my identity was tied up in my job. That my identity wasn't so much tied up in who I am as a believer and a follower of Jesus, but was more tied up in I have a job and I can take care of my family. And so I began to blame the island. I began to blame a lot of different people, the culture of Maui, what have you. And I spent a lot of time saying, God, what are you doing? Why does this have to happen? What, what are you doing? And I spent all this time being angry and lamenting about our plight there. My response to God, to the pain of my life, was this. God, I don't believe that you know what you're doing, and I don't believe you can fix this. And I don't think I ever audibly said that. You know, it wasn't like, God, you don't know what you're doing. But my actions reflected that. The way I spoke to my wife, the way I interacted with people, the way I looked at, cert- at future opportunities said that. That I felt like I was stuck on this island, that I didn't, I didn't really feel like I belonged. And I, I squandered an opportunity there because my brokenness could have led me closer and closer to Jesus and to God. But instead, I kind of let it just knock me further and further away from him. There is an intimacy that can come from our brokenness but it doesn't just happen on its own. We don't just get broken and get, oh, now I feel really close to God. It takes work, it takes effort for us to find the intimacy with God. One author put it this way, the first step towards healing is not a step away from the pain, but a step towards it. Let me read that again. The first step towards healing is not a step away from the pain, but a step towards it. Instead of retreating into depression, into the what-ifs, into the the good old days kind of mentality. Healing can be found in bringing our broken state, our broken hearts to God. David speaks of this in Psalm 34 when he says, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his eyes are attentive to their cry. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. I love that this is the God that we have. That we don't simply have a God who's like, hey, I'm going to be there for you and hang out with you when times are good and hang out. But we have a God who says, I want to be close to you. I want to be attentive to hear your cries when you are at the lowest of your lows. I want to save you when you are at your most crushed and your lowest place. And the, ultimately, the reason we find healing in stepping towards our pain as opposed, as away from it, is because we have a Savior who has already experienced the depths of any brokenness that you and I can feel. Jesus can understand and heal our brokenness because he has already experienced it. You know, the message of the Christmas story is one that's pretty profound. It's that God loved you and I so deeply 
and wanted to redeem us and come into a relationship with us so desperately that he would come to this world and live as a, as a man, live under very normal and difficult circumstances just to be with you so he could live a perfect life, so he'd die for you and he could pay the ultimate price for your sins. And before Jesus is even born, his, his life is surrounded by conflict. The Jews are in a time of mourning and, and lamenting that they're, they don't have their nationhood. They're under the thumb of Roman occupation, and they just desperately want someone to ride out on a horse, kick out Caesar, and put a new David on the throne and let Israel reign again. They're wanting nothing more than that to happen. Mary and Joseph are, are in a broken state, too. Mary is facing ridicule, scorn, and worse for being pregnant outside of wedlock. Joseph is faced with the decision of turning in Mary and outing her for being pregnant or to quietly divorce her and just slip away from that relationship. Mary and Joseph return to Bethlehem to his hometown where he should be known, he should have family, and yet there's no room in the house for them. And so you get to go be outside with your very pregnant wife who's about to give birth and you get to give birth outside in a manger, surrounded by animals. And this is, this is Jesus Christ we're talking about. This is God incarnate, right? He should be born in the grandest of castles surrounded by angels and trumpets and unicorns and whatever. Like he, this is Jesus. He should be, this should be the birth of all births. Yet it's a quiet night. He's outside. He's surrounded by animals and shepherds who are culturally unclean, who people want nothing to do with. These are guys who live broken lives, kind of in isolation by themselves. And they're the only ones who are there present for it. And then shortly thereafter, uh, Jesus and his family have to flee for their lives because there's a psychopath king, on the th- a king named Herod who is so jealous and paranoid of losing his power that he's killing and murdering little boys who are around the age of Jesus just so he can hold on to the little bit of power that he has. And that's just the first couple years of his life. The prophet Isaiah prophesied the brokenness to come in Jesus when he said this. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire, that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took on our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. I find such comfort in this that the, the God of the universe would love me so much, that he would love you so much, that he would come and live this kind of life for you and I, that he would suffer pain and rejection that is just unimaginable, that he would take on a pain that you and I so rightly deserve, and that he would take, take all that away from us. Jesus understands and feels your pain better than even we could ever possibly imagine. And our response to pain is often to, like I said, just avoid it at all costs. Jesus' response to pain is quite different. His response to brokenness is to live in it, to experience it, to fully take it on so that he can be the remedy 
for all brokenness. The pain that we've experienced, the wounds that we carry, have the potential to absolutely cripple us. They do. They have the potential to just lay waste to us, to just knock us down. But they also have the potential to bring about redemption, to spring life back into a dead heart. They have the potential to rise us up from the ashes, to make us better than we had ever been before, not because anything we can possibly do, but simply because we have a God whose sole mission in life and our lives is, is to redeem us, to bring redemption. Brokenness is the conduit for God's work to begin in us. The author of Hebrews speaks of a great high priest we have when he says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to emphasize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we were, yet he did not sin. Let us approach God's throne of grace and confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. You know, there is mercy and there is grace abundant for us to have in Jesus. But it takes us approaching his throne with confidence. Often in our broken states, we don't even think about approaching God's throne. We just think about sitting on the sidelines and trying to figure our own way out of it. In our brokenness, we kind of go, man, I, don't, I wish I had the past again. And God says, no, approach my throne with confidence. I've experienced what you've experienced. There's grace and mercy for you if you'll take it. You know, 2017 has been, um, it's not a year that people will look back in history and go, wow, that was a really e easy year for people. You know, like I look at our, our country and the surrounding countries, and it's been a difficult year. You look at, at, at South Texas and the, and the hurricanes and the floodings, to Northern California and the unimaginable destruction of fire up there, to Puerto Rico and Mexico and... There's, it's, just, it's been a difficult year. I think about Las Vegas. I think about Charlottesville and so many other situations of brokenness. It's been a difficult year. And if it's been a difficult year for you, we mourn with you, we weep with you, we are there for you. But it is in that brokenness where new beginnings can come. Brokenness does not have to be our end. It can be the beginning. Jesus lived a life marked by brokenness and endured pain unimaginable, but his pain was not his end. In fact, his pain gives ours a chance to be redeemed. For it's in our brokenness that we see that we, are, we are need healing more than we ever thought possible. It's in our weakness that it becomes clear that we are not enough. And it's in our sin that we are, have such a need for a Savior so we can, we can attain holiness so we can have Jesus. I want to close with one of my favorite parables. It's in the book of Luke. And it's a parable that Jesus tells of two men who approach God in, in prayer. And it says this. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you, I am not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all, I, of all I get. 
But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Will be exalted. You and I are broken. We have made mistakes. We have a past that is littered, if not full of regrets. We've made a lot of mistakes. On our own, we are failures. But this failure will allow it can be the foundation for God to work. For us to beat our chest and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, have mercy on me and my brokenness. We have a God who says, I will hear your cries. I will be attentive to them. And I will heal your heart if you'll allow me to. May we be people who have the humility to say, God, I am not enough. I am, I am not good enough. Fix me. And he will if we'll let him, if we'll go to him, if we'll admit that we can't do it alone. You and I are broken. And often the Christmas season, more than any other, illuminates that brokenness. But we have a God who makes all things new, who wants to make all things new, if we'll let him. Let's make this Christmas season the season where we say, God, I'm broken, fix me. Let's step into our brokenness so that God can use that as the foundation to bring healing and redemption unlike anything we've ever seen before. Let's pray.